This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am. Not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast is actually going to be broken into two parts, both because of who we will be discussing and because of the sheer amount of information. To just utter his first name alone in the true crime community and instantly, everyone knows exactly who you're talking about. He was my first my introduction into the world of true crime and serial killers. His acts were sadistic and beyond disturbing, and yet, for most of us, we still believe to this day that there must have been something there beyond the typical serial killer. And I will be explaining that very reason with some science later. So it looks like we'll be closing this decade and beginning the new one with him, which I find fitting. This podcast will be on Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, folks, it goes without saying that this will be graphic. Since I'm recording this right now, I don't know exactly where the first part will end, but my instincts are telling me that most all of the intense graphic information will be in the second part. So here we go. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer was born on May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So let's get into some history for that time. In 1960, the United States declared that it was sending 3,500 American soldiers to Vietnam. This was in response to an escalating situation between North and South Vietnam. The year before, North Vietnam was building up a military presence for a full-scale military conquest of South Vietnam. Some of the issue was the continuing Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union 
as well as U.S. presidents, such as Dwight D. Eisenhower, believing in the domino theory, that if one country fell to communism, each country with borders would be most likely to fall as well. You see, North Vietnam was being given financial and military backing from the Soviet Union and China. There were also critical food shortages in East Germany, and 160,000 refugees crossed into West Germany. Nikita Khrushchev then ordered the Berlin Wall to be built. In Northern Ireland, the Irish Republican Army began its fight against the British. In South Africa, Afrikaner police opened fire with sub-machine guns on demonstrators in the township of Sharpville, known as the Sharpville Massacre. Over 250 native Africans were wounded or killed. It was one of the first and most violent demonstrations against apartheid in South Africa. Also in 1960, NASA launched the Pioneer 5 space probe to travel between the orbits of Earth and Venus to gather information about the deep space between the two planets. President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1960 to close loopholes from the Civil Rights Act of 1957, dealing mostly with voter disenfranchisement. This created penalties for anyone who tried to keep people from registering to vote and extended the Civil Rights Commission as well as establishing federal inspection of local voter registration polls to counteract discrimination laws in the South. Later that year, John F. Kennedy won the presidential election and was the first Catholic and the youngest to be elected at 43 years old. He was a World War II veteran who came from one of the country's wealthiest families. This year was the first ever televised U.S. presidential debate, which was, of course, between JFK and Nixon. Also this year, the Summer Olympics were hosted by Rome in Italy. These were the first games to be fully televised, with 83 countries sending a combined over 5,000 athletes to take part in 150 sporting events. Also in 1960, the horror classic Psycho premiered in New York City. It was filmed, produced, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and it is considered the mother of modern slasher films. The novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, by Harper Lee, was published and was an astounding success. For those of you watching Netflix, The Crown, Princess Margaret married Antony Armstrong Jones this year. Some famous people who shared their birth year with Jeffrey include Antonio Banderas, Hugh Grant, and Bono from the band U2. 
Now the average cost for a house was about $12,700 or rent was around $100 a month. The average new car would cost you something around $2,600 and a gallon of gas was just 25 cents. So this was the world that Jeffrey was born into. So we're going to get into some rather interesting family history that I was able to find. The majority of this information was from the site citizendahmer.wordpress.com. There are some really cool pictures of his ancestors if you want to go have a look. There is a lot of information here going back as far as Jeffrey's great-grandparents. And I did this for a reason. I think if you know anything about Jeffrey thus far, you will see some patterns and similarities. So stick with me on this. It's going to be a ride. Okay, so his mother's maternal grandparents were Ole Rundberg and Inga Clevin, who immigrated from Norway in the 1890s. Ole was born in 1870, and Inga was born in 1889. The couple's marriage certificate can be seen on that site I mentioned, along with photos, and it states they were married on December 1, 1909 in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Ole and Inga were the parents of Lillian Runberg, born in 1915. The point of this is to remember Lillian. Okay, so his mother's paternal grandparents were Ernest Flint and Lottie Mae White, who oddly and nearly resembles Lizzie Borden to me. On that site are two letters written by Lottie's own mother, one is Lottie's birth certificate stating that Lottie Mae White was born on September 5, 1882 in Union, Wisconsin. It also says that there was no physician present. This likely indicates that they were extremely poor. The second letter is Lottie's mother's will stating that all of her personal belongings are to be given to Lottie. Now, Ernest Flint was born in July 1873 somewhere in Wisconsin. Both of his parents were born in New York and must have moved to Wisconsin at some point. Ernest is an interesting story. The person that did the brunt of this research on that site, as well as the research I did myself, we weren't really able to find out exactly what was wrong with him only that he suffered with some mental illness. In 1920, at 47 years old, he is listed as an inmate at the Wisconsin State Hospital for the Insane, now called the Mendota Health Institute. He is listed in their records as an alcoholic, but nothing further, and I suspect there was indeed more. There is a picture of him on the site that makes it seem like he was an avid outdoorsman. So Ernest and Lottie were, according to Lottie's mother's will, were married on September 30th, 1908 in what looks like Hayward, Wisconsin, 
from what I could tell from the handwriting. I can't find any records that show they had any other children, aside from Floyd, born in July of 1911 in Chippewa Falls. Okay. Jeffrey's mother's parents were Floyd Flint and Lillian Rundberg. Floyd was of Irish descent and was apparently an abusive alcoholic. And of course we know that his father was committed for being an alcoholic. Floyd was abusive to both his wife and his children. Now Lillian was just described as a quote Norwegian housewife. Floyd's sexual appetite was apparently such that Joyce, Jeffrey's mother, described him as constantly fondling her mother. It would be so constant that she would have to stop whatever she was doing and go have sex with him so he would be satiated for at least a while. It has also been hinted that he sexually abused Joyce as well, but we don't know that to be gospel and she certainly never said that happened. He did, however, once beat Joyce for dancing with a boy at a wedding, striking her so violently that her head went through a glass window. It does appear that Floyd and Lillian had three children, one of course being Joyce Flint, Jeffrey's mother. So now we're going to move on to Jeffrey's father's side. Jeffrey's father's paternal grandparents were Johann Dahmer and Rosa Seidel, both of whom immigrated to Wisconsin from Germany. Johann, who went by John once he was in the U.S., was born in 1867 and only lived to be 38 years old. He died in 1905, but from what I couldn't find. Rosa, or Rosie, was born in 1868 and died at the age of 52 in 1920. Together they had two children, Edna and Herbert Dahmer. Herbert was only two years old when his father died and only 16 when his mother died. So remember Herbert. So Jeffrey's father's maternal grandparents were Robert Hughes and Eunice Adele Spears. Robert was born in Wisconsin, but it's thought that his parents immigrated from Wales. Now, Eunice was reported to be born in both Iowa and Wisconsin, so I'm not entirely sure which is correct. I also couldn't find out how many children they had, but we know for sure they had a daughter, Catherine, born in 1904. So this brings us to Jeffrey's father's parents, Herbert Dahmer and Catherine Hughes. Both were school teachers. Lionel, Jeffrey's dad, describes both of his parents as extremely supportive of him and his education, but that he felt his mother made him feel, quote, intellectually inferior, though he also said that he did understand she was just trying to help him. Herbert died in 1971 at 67 years old, and Catherine lived until she was nearly 90 old enough to know exactly what her grandson had become. So now we are at Jeffrey's parents, 
Lionel Dahmer, and Joyce Flint. Lionel Herbert Dahmer was born in July 1936 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, according to Lionel's book, A Father's Story, he states that from a very young age, he had a fascination with fire and particularly matches. He confessed that he became so fixated on them that he would steal them whenever he found them and his parents never knew. As stated before, his parents were teachers, but his father apparently was also a barber. Lionel wrote that his father was extremely hands-on, even compared to the more distant parenting role fathers took on back in those days. As Lionel got older, he says that his fascination with matches morphed into a curiosity about bombs and making explosives. But fire was always the ultimate thrill. So when his father, Herbert, finally found out, he scolded Lionel, but also talked to him about the dangers of the fires and so on. He has gone on to state in a few interviews that he too was very backward and shy when he was young, and that, coupled with his obsession with fire, might have developed into more, but didn't. He insinuated that he feared he might have passed something on to Jeffrey. But as I said, we'll dive into that in a bit. So Joyce Flint, Jeffrey's mother, came from a violent and explosive alcoholic father who apparently could not keep his hands off of her mother. She, too, was going to write a book that was going to be a rebuttal of sorts of Lionel's book, but... She unfortunately died from breast cancer before it could be completed. But in the book titled, The Silent Victims, The Aftermath of Failed Children on Their Mother's Lives, she did give quite a bit of detail about her life. Joy says that she was raised to believe that a woman's purpose in life was to get married quickly, start a family immediately, and be content with life as a wife and mother. She was taught that a woman was to be seen and not heard, to be complacent and agreeable at all times. Joyce said that, had her situation been different, she believed she should have been just a career woman who never married or had children. You fully get it that she felt trapped in her role as a wife and mother, that she, quote, longed to be free of it all, unquote. She states with a surprising amount of venom that Lionel actually had very little to do with Jeffrey's upbringing, that he was rarely around because his life was his work, and when he was around, he was constantly correcting and scolding Jeffrey. It is apparent that Joyce was an intelligent young girl and was successful in school, but described her family life and relationships as setting herself up for emotional isolation, neglect, and battering. She graduated high school and went on to college, but her father was continuously telling her that, quote, a good girl is a married girl, unquote that girls that didn't hurry up and get married were clearly 
whores. So, as she had met Lionel in college, and she said he was her first love, they married quickly. The newlyweds lived with Lionel's parents, and after only being married for a couple of months, Joyce became pregnant with Jeffrey. To say that she suffered from morning sickness is a gross understatement. Lionel says in his book that she was sick nearly the entire pregnancy, and it got so bad at some points that she was just not able to keep food down at all. She had been working as a teletypist, and due to her being so ill, she was forced to quit working. Lionel's mother did what she could to help Joyce during the pregnancy as Lionel was still studying for his Master's of Analytical Chemistry at Marquette University. It is said that Joyce became very agitated at much of any noise going on in the house, and the sense of cooking food only aggravated her nausea further. She constantly complained to him to do something, to go confront whomever the source of her irritation was, but he couldn't do it. He was extremely introverted and also really hated confrontation. Reading Lionel's book, you get the sense that Joyce craved near constant attention. What we would now call a, you know, quote, pity party, as there always seemed to be something wrong with her. He would take her to the doctor, and eventually, after so many visits, the doctor would give Joyce injections of barbiturates or morphine to calm her nerves, and she would be much more content. Now, keep in mind, she was pregnant. So, Lionel openly admitted that he was at a loss as to what to do to help her, so he threw himself into his work and his studies. Her personality was full of peaks and valleys, and he was never really capable of getting a true read on her emotional state. When Jeffrey was born, both parents were excited. He was born healthy, save a very small deformity in one of his legs that required it to have a cast on it for just a small bit, and the new family returned to Lionel's parents' house. But the calm didn't last, and Lionel was forced to get an apartment for them away from his parents, thinking that perhaps this would make Joyce happy. I will save you this suspense and tell you that, no, it did not. She complained about being stuck at home since she had no driver's license and Lionel always being gone. In her writings, she makes it seem like he was just never around, but we know this isn't true. We've all seen the many photos of Jeffrey as a toddler with a smile that covers his entire face while spending time with his father. My guess would be that Lionel was just as hands-on as his father had been to him, but he was also working and trying to finish his degree. Regardless, things were not really any better once they got their own place. Now, both parents said that Jeffrey was indeed a bubbly and happy baby and toddler. Both parents spoke of his full-body giggles that he would often get. But his parents' arguing only got worse. 
During one particularly bad argument, Joyce held a kitchen knife in her hand and made, quote, poking motions while she yelled at Lionel. When Jeffrey was four years old, he was diagnosed with a double hernia that would require surgery. Doctors and nurses were paying attention to his genital area, of course, and when he awoke from the surgery, he asked if they had cut off his penis. Also around this age, little Jeffrey and his father were riding a bicycle together when Jeff spotted an injured young Nighthawk on the road, but it was still alive. Lionel and Jeff nursed the bird back to health completely and then set it free. Lionel stated that might have been the happiest moment of Jeffrey's young life. Throughout time, Joyce was becoming increasingly argumentative, wanting everyone to give her attention or pity her. She apparently spent much of her time in bed, stating she was recovering from feeling weak. Once, Joyce attempted suicide by trying to overdose on prescription medication that was given to her for anxiety and nervousness, and it is said that she became addicted. But despite the tension in the home, people described young Jeff as a sweet and energetic child. However, after his hernia surgery, he was notably more quiet and withdrawn. Jeffrey later stated that his early childhood memories were filled with the tension between his parents, but he also said there were a lot of good times as well. There are home movies that show Lionel and Jeffrey playfully wrestling, going to the fair or amusement parks or playing tennis together. We must assume that Joyce was the one filming these charming glimpses into what looked like an ideal life. For all of the fighting his parents did between each other, they both doted on Jeffrey. Young Jeff also had an interest in animals, beginning with a collect. Young Jeff also had an interest in animals, beginning with collecting bugs that he put into jars. Lionel once put some poison under the crawl space of their home because mice had taken up residence. When he retrieved the dead little bodies and the bones, he threw those remains into a bucket and Jeffrey was bewildered, remarking on the sound the bones made as they landed in the bucket. This would be the beginning of a morbid fascination with dead animals. Within the next couple of years, Lionel was completing his PhD in chemistry, so he was admittedly very busy, but Jeffrey remained playful until his father began to notice that his son lost interest in all sort of competitive type games and even more so if the game involved physical contact. Instead, he preferred to play games where the rules were clearly defined and non-confrontational, as his father put it. His favorite games at this time were hide-and-seek, kick-the-can, and so on, Mostly, he enjoyed playing games that involved hiding and stalking. 
and then he began acting even more withdrawn. Lionel describes his hair and his eyes getting darker, much like his mood. He would sit for periods of time, just silent and still. Lionel stating, quote, his face oddly motionless, unquote. In 1966, Lionel earned his PhD and they moved to Akron, Ohio, so that he could work as a research chemist for a large chemical company. And then soon after, Joyce was pregnant again. Jeffrey was six years old. Now, this pregnancy was just as taxing as the first for Joyce, who displayed the same intense symptoms, both physical and emotional, as her first pregnancy. Jeff himself was starting first grade, and during the parent-teacher conference, Lionel stated in his book, quote, Miss Allard, an extremely empathetic teacher, told me that Jeff had impressed her as being inordinately shy and reclusive. He had been polite and had followed all her instructions, but he had given the impression of a profound unhappiness. He had not interacted with the other children. Although he had done the work assigned to him, he had done it without interest, merely as a task that had to be completed. He had not been able to engage in conversation with other children. He had not responded to their casual approaches, nor made any approaches of his own. On the playground, he'd kept to himself, merely pacing about the schoolyard, doing what she described as nothing, unquote. Now, Lionel just assumed that Jeffrey had inherited his own social awkwardness and shyness and didn't worry too terribly much, always encouraging his beloved son to do his best to reach out and make friends. And then, finally, Jeff's little brother was born. His parents, wanting to cheer him up, let him name the baby, and he chose the name David. There are home movies that show Jeff holding his infant brother, seeming to know just how delicate the baby was, kissing him on his tiny head. It is reported that Joyce had terrible postpartum depression and David was also a very fussy baby. And then the family of four moved into the infamous house at 4480 West Bath Road in Bath, Ohio, which is a wealthy neighborhood near Akron. The house was built in 1952 and has three beds, three baths on one and a half acres, surrounded by trees and forest around. So, while Joyce was battling her own unhappiness, a new baby, as well as her and Lionel's growing disdain for each other, Jeffrey busied himself playing with the family dog, whom he absolutely adored, but also began to display a morbid curiosity toward dead animals. Jeffrey took to collecting roadkill with a couple of his friends. He would dissect them and put the parts into jars in a woodshed on the Dahmer property. He said he did this because he was curious as to how the pieces fit back together. 
The other kids thought this was strange and began to distance themselves from him. And while at school, he was still quiet and withdrawn. The school was actually concerned enough that they spoke with Lionel about it, but again, he himself had been a painfully shy child, and he thought everything was fine. He encouraged his son to get more involved with the other kids, but this pressure only pushed Jeffrey to take his fascination with dead animals to the next level. He began decapitating animal remains nailing them to a tree, he even put the head of a dog atop a stake or a wooden cross out in the forest that surrounded his home. Lionel was, by now, a fairly accomplished chemist, and noting Jeffrey's interest in bones, thought he might have a career in taxidermy or even medicine, so he taught Jeffrey how to safely bleach bones and preserve them fitting, and Jeffrey began an impressive collection. However, his parents' fighting was getting worse. He would escape the tension in his home by going out and beating trees with sticks. Lionel also noted in his book that, starting around 10 years old, he noticed a marked rigidity in Jeff, both mentally and physically and that even his posture went from a very average boy's to stiff and tense. Young Jeff began to isolate even more, often spending most of his time in his room or watching television and avoided social settings as much as he could get away with. At 13 years old, Jeff secretly began drinking alcohol. He took some to school and hid it in his locker. His early childhood happiness was all but gone. He seemed lethargic and had very few friends. His temper was short and most people steered clear of him. He was observed mostly staring off with a flat, emotionless face. His father encouraged him to play sports, and he did play tennis, but Jeff was just not interested. He didn't read books either, unless they were specifically assigned at school. So at the start of high school, the other kids knew quite well that he was drinking. If someone asked him about it, he would tell them that it was his medicine. Teachers remarked that he was quiet, but polite, and they knew he was intelligent, though he barely put in enough effort to pass his classes. He did join high school band, but he didn't stick with it. His father bought him some workout equipment, which he did use for about a year, but that too was just another discarded pastime. You see, by this point... Jeff had shut himself down completely externally and was beginning to get lost within the developing fantasies in his mind. He knew at this point that he was homosexual, but he also knew with 100% certainty that this would never be acceptable. He stated in an interview once that that was to remain, quote, hush, hush, not talked about. 
His family was religious and old-fashioned. Lionel once said in an interview that had he known Jeff was gay, he would have put him in a program to, quote, reprogram his thinking, unquote, and that being gay was repugnant to God. Now, you and I both know that Jeff had to have known quite clearly that his family believed this as he was going through puberty, so of course he would have never discussed it. He even said by the time he was 15 years old, if you've heard the intro to this podcast, he said that his thoughts were basically unshareable. Because on top of not being able to accept that he was gay, the alcoholism he was now suffering with and the violent sexual fantasies he was beginning to have, he was also dealing with his parents' now constant and escalated fighting. At school, he would be drunk and draw chalk body outlines on the floor and make random odd noises for attention. They called it doing a Dahmer. As I'm sure most of you have heard the stories of how he acted when he was in high school. Now, as Jeff came closer to graduating, his grades began to plummet even further. His father hired a tutor to help him get his grades up. Lionel said that he was regretfully unaware of his son's very serious alcohol issue due to the intense situation with his marriage. Joyce apparently began to shake all over and called it, quote, fluttering. She would say she was bedridden with exhaustion for days. She took increasing amounts of medications such as Valium. Doctors ordered a barrage of tests, which, of course, came back stating she was perfectly healthy. She had even been checked into a mental health facility twice, and once she was released, she joined group therapy, where she apparently raged about her own father. Jeff's parents began marriage counseling to try to save their marriage, but the damage was done. His grandfather, Joyce's father, passed away, and Joyce stated that once her father was dead, she finally felt free and wanted nothing further to do with her marriage to Lionel. Before Jeffrey graduated high school, Lionel moved out of the family home. Not long after, it was time for the senior prom. He did take a girl from school but he was extremely uncomfortable the entire time. Of course, he was doing what he knew was expected of him, but if you have seen the photo taken of him and the girl he took to prom, it is abundantly clear that he was not happy. Then, a few months later, Jeffrey graduated high school. This joyous occasion was then met with his mother taking his now 12-year-old brother David and moving out of the family home. Now he was completely alone, abandoned by his parents that were supposed to care for him. But since he was now a legal adult, there was no custody issue. So that's the backstory. I know that was a lot to take in, but I truly wanted to give you the whole picture. It is clear that Lionel seems to blame himself for the most part. 
It is quite clear that Lionel seems to blame himself for the most part for Jeff's awkwardness, his physical isolation and shyness to some degree, and that could be quite possible. But let me blow your mind with some science. One of my favorite scientists is Dr. James Fallon. He has many videos on YouTube discussing his work studying the minds of psychopaths or serial killers. He has had the pleasure of analyzing brain scans of many very famous serial killers and I suspect he was able to review Jeffrey's. So here's what I found to be super interesting and I think you will too. During Dr. Fallon's TED talk titled Exploring the Mind of a Killer, he states, quote, The key thing is that the major violence gene is called the MAOA gene, and there is a variant of this gene that is in the normal population and it's sex linked. It's on the X chromosome, and so, in this way, you can only get it from your mother. And in fact, this is probably why mostly men or boys are psychopathic killers or very aggressive because the daughter can get one X from the father and one X from the mother and it's kind of diluted out. But for a son, he can only get the X chromosome from his mother. So this is how it's passed. Unquote. So I'm going to give you a minute to let that sink in. If you remember from Jeff's family history, we see mental illness, alcoholism, and violence passed through generations, all on his mother's side. Interestingly, there have also been studies that have proven that extreme trauma experienced by a person can still be expressed genetically for two generations. I feel quite comfortable in saying that Genetically, Jeffrey was set up for violence and alcoholism and mental illness. So what about his environment? In his mother's writings, she made it quite clear that she resented having married Lionel and having children. She made a whole statement about how she believed she should have just been a career woman and she should have never had children. While I believe that she did love her sons, I know from first-hand experience that there is no way she didn't project that out into her world and her children picked up on that easily. She made everything about her and her unhappiness. She had spells where she was tolerable, I'm sure, but we heard so many times that she would work herself up into a near nervous breakdown, as it were, and it seemed pretty obvious that it was for attention. She married a man who was cripplingly shy, who didn't grow up in an environment of chaos, and was completely incapable of, of processing her emotions. It makes sense that he was kind of scared and threw himself into his work. So guys, where did Jeff fit in all of this? His entire childhood, he watched as his mother put on these grand shows of drama, and I'm quite sure he felt unwanted on some level. 
He also watched his beloved father, whom he knew adored him completely, do what introverts do, escape the drama and get away. When he was barely older than a toddler, he had to have surgery for that double hernia and was in so much pain when he woke up from the anesthesia, which Lionel said took Jeff much longer than had been anticipated to come out of. Jeff asked his mother if his penis had been removed. Such attention and pain to that part of his body, while still so young, would leave a mental scar. He and his father, when Jeff was still quite young, nursed a bird back to health and released it, which made Jeff very happy. Once he developed his fascination with dead animals, it was clear that it wasn't the death itself. Jeff was actually an animal lover, having pets growing up that he absolutely adored. It was after the animal was already dead that he became interested in the bones and inner workings of the animals. Now, children who do this have developmentally related motivations, such as curiosity or exploration. Sometimes they do it for mood enhancement, sexual gratification. Um, They use it for post-traumatic play, imitation, rehearsal for interpersonal violence, and even a vehicle for emotional abuse. The age range for when Jeff was doing these things with animals is referred to as the, quote, cry for help child, and it also spilled into the, quote, conduct disordered, according to Psychology Today. Now, as far as Jeff being gay, we already know that it would have been considered unacceptable. For many kids, their sexual identity becomes clear around puberty. And though not always the case, most kids figure out during this time that they feel differently than the general population with regards to who they're attracted to. They commonly feel scared or at least nervous during this time, beginning to feel isolated from their own peers and especially if they already feel like they don't fit in. So it goes without saying that Jeff already felt out of place around other kids before this. We have to assume that him realizing he was homosexual would have intensified this considering the times. Back then, being gay was still somewhat considered a mental illness or a personal choice. They were even sometimes deemed possible pedophiles. In Jeff's case, though, he knew his father was a pretty understanding person, but his father was a religious man who believed that the Bible is interpreted as saying homosexuality is a mortal sin. Now, I will not debate these kinds of individual beliefs with anyone because I believe people have the right to their own opinion. However, I think that if people are going to interpret the Christian Bible in that way, then that should be kept consistent throughout absolutely everything it says. No cherry picking allowed. But I digress. What we have here is a boy who was born with the genetics for alcoholism, violence, and let's not forget the trauma from up to two generations prior in his genes as well. 
He was being raised by a woman with a flair for the dramatic, who sounded to me like she might have had some narcissistic traits at the very least of her own, though I am not diagnosing her. He idolized his father, but his father was fighting his own wars with his relationship with Joyce and working hard to complete his PhD and working and providing for his family and so on, as well as his father's non-negotiable view of what Jeff knew he was. Oh, that was a lot, guys. That was a lot. So this is going to be it for part one. We've covered tons of information here. I want to say that it is not my intention to try to make anyone excuse Jeffrey's behavior that we will get into in the second half. I absolutely am completely horrified at what he did to his victims. I cannot begin to imagine what mindset someone has to be in to be able to do what he did and of course, the anguish his victims' families had to have felt, especially after having to hear the details, my God. And as I've said before, the second half will be intense. I can only censor the information so much before we lose the level of depravity that needs to be exposed in order to get the full picture. So we are ending this decade with Jeffrey's childhood, an innocence that is slowly lost as the monster within him began to grow. We will begin the next decade with him giving in to that very monster. Thanks to everyone that listens, and please feel free to DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing or leave a comment on YouTube under the same name of this podcast. Thank you so, so much to everyone that